0: You're drowned by my perfect fire, my perfect life. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the lanky guys. My name is Scott Powell, and I am flying solo this week, unfortunately. Uh, Father Peter's out of town. Summer, you guys, summer's just a weird time for us. Um, things are crazy. My wife and I run an outdoor ministry called Camp Waitiwa up in the mountains. We're back and forth. Father Peter's traveling a lot. Things are crazy, but we want you guys to know how important you are to us and how grateful we are for your listening week after week. I actually, uh, (laughs) I will confess, I tried to find a rerun this week because things are a little hectic. And apparently, because of a liturgical abnormality, there was no 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time three years ago. Uh, I think it was because Easter was late that year. So Um, I'm excited because I was actually reading through these readings and. I didn't wreck, I, I, I knew the readings. I've seen them before in other contexts, but put together, I, I really couldn't remember doing a podcast on these, which is fascinating because I've gotten so used to the liturgical cycle by doing this podcast. But I'm really excited about these. Um, it's a little bit dark. Really, today's podcast is all about sin. Um, bum, bum, bum. So things are a little bit dark, a little bit gloomy. But of course, there's hope in the midst of it because we round everything out with Jesus Christ who has conquered sin, who has conquered death. But. These readings are one of those things where you have to get through the muck and the darkness in order to actually see the light. You know, I had a professor when I was a graduate student years ago who said, you know, talking about how we are to theologically understand what Jesus has done in the story of salvation history. He said, imagine you walk into the doctor's office and, you know, you go in for an exam or just a routine thing, whatever it is. And the doctor comes out and he says, look, we we did some tests and we found out that you have very severe cancer and you're actually going to die probably within within a couple of weeks. It is spread throughout your body. We never detected this before. But lucky you, we've actually discovered a cure. We just discovered a cure for this particular type of cancer. So you didn't know that you had it. You were about to die, but now we're actually going to heal you today you would kind of walk out of that doctor's office in sort of a, a whirlwind right you you all of a sudden this news hit you you didn't know that you had this problem and the problem's now solved and everything's kind of fine and you kind of leave you probably you know be shaken up but you go about your day as normal that's a different scenario than if you've been suffering under the weight of some you know debilitating disease for months or maybe even years or maybe you have a family member who is and then you find out that hey there's a cure for this you can be set free of this burden that would change a person's life. And too often, we read the story of Jesus and the story of the scriptures as though we didn't actually realize we had a problem that needed solving. Jesus shows up when he does. You know, we, we've talked before on the podcast about God's notion of time and the idea of chronos time, which is, you know, what time is it? Oh, it's 1114 on Thursday. And then there's the idea of kairos time, which is God's timing. And God waited for thousands and thousands of years to actually fully set us free, partially because, as St. Paul says, we needed for sin to be shown to be sin. We needed to actually feel that we could not save ourselves, because that's always the human tendency, to think that we can fix it, we can solve it, we can pull ourselves up, and we can be our own saviors. That, that is the perennial sin in the Garden of Eden, right? The evil one tempts Adam and Eve to be like God, And that's what we fall into, and we're going to be the ones to arbitrate this and choose this. But the story of salvation history is nothing if not this long saga in which God shows us that we really need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And that's kind of where we begin this week. So our first reading for the 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time is coming from the book of Genesis. We begin in the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Then we're moving into Psalm 130 toward the end of the entire Psalter, which I think matters for what it has to say to us. We're in Psalm 130, one of the the most well known of the Psalms, I think. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 2, 3 through 4, 5 through 6, 7 through 8. And the response itself is from 7, verse 7, stitched together with B and C, which is a little bit piecemeal. Our second reading is coming from the book of 2 Corinthians, which we don't spend a whole lot of time in. It's one of my absolute favorite books because the spiritual insights that Paul shares in this book are, are pretty remarkable. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 1. And then we go into our gospel, which is coming from the gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. This is the story of what's called the binding of the strong man. So we'll get there in a second. All right, back to Genesis. Genesis 3, we're, we're thrust in really the middle of the bad news. Um, This is the moments right after Adam and Eve have fallen. They've eaten the fruit of the tree that God asked them not to eat of. Um, which is actually, I was having a conversation with some of our Camp staff last night as we're doing our training of how to, you know, convey the truths of the, the scriptures and the truths of the Catholic faith to these young people that we're going to be serving. But we were talking about Genesis, and we were talking about the nature of what original sin was. And we talked a little bit about what the tree in the Garden of Eden was. And if you remember the story, this is a story that bugged me for a really long time, you guys. We were told that, you know, God created human beings. He created the whole universe. He created the garden. And he said to Adam and Eve, go and and thrive. And I made this for your happiness and for you. You can eat of any of the fruit of the tree. Be happy. Go nuts. This is your land that I've given you. Just don't eat that one thing. Just trust me on this. And, of course, original sin consists in the fact that, as the catechism says, man, let our trust we let our trust in our creator die in our hearts. But if you think about it, you know, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was this thing that God asked them not to do? What was this thing that God was holding to himself? And I always was bothered by this concept because to read it in, you know, the common English translation, this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, you know, I even put it to our staff last night. What do you think that means? What is this tree of the knowledge? What does this represent? And everyone's like, well, it's knowing the difference between right or wrong or knowing how to discern what's good and bad, the knowledge of what's good and evil. Which, if you really think about it, makes absolutely no sense. Why would God want to withhold from Adam and Eve the ability to discern right from wrong, the ability to discern good and evil? Why does he keep that? And I've I've been yelled at. By for that, before, from, you know, people who find their way into my office and have a chip on their shoulder about the church and the whole Judeo-Christian tradition and think that our religion, the Catholic faith, Christianity is this faith that if you go back to the beginning, has this God who just wants his people to be ignorant and like puppets, right? But then all of a sudden they eat this fruit and all of a sudden they know the difference between right and wrong and they can make choices and it doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense if you actually go back to the original languages and you guys know we'd love to do this the word for knowledge there in genesis 3 or actually it's before that in genesis um, 1 and 2 the tree for the tree of knowledge it's not knowledge in the way that we think about it. Knowing, you know, I read a book. So now, you know, Father Peter was really into clouds last summer. And he read a bunch of books on clouds and he knew about clouds. He's into trees at the present moment. So he's reading books about trees and he knows a lot about trees. But that's not what the word here in Hebrew is. It's the word yada, And yada later on, you know, when it says Adam knew his wife in the quote unquote biblical sense of the word. Right. That's the word that's being used here, which is really not about sexuality, but it implies an intimate covenantal relationship, a much deeper thing than simply knowing about something. And so what the ancients all said, and what the ancient rabbis who gave us the Old Testament said that this tree was, was not knowing about good and evil, because I propose to you, Adam and Eve already knew what good and evil was. You remember in the beginning, when God puts Adam in the garden, he says, your job is to till and keep And the word for keep that we get in hebrew is the word shamar which means literally to guard or protect so from the beginning adam is told to protect and guard the garden which implies that there's something bad to guard against which he knows that that exists or else god's commandment makes no sense and not only that but when god gives the potential consequence for eating the tree of the the fruit of the tree he says if you eat it you will die And they have to know that that's a bad thing and that something that's not to be desired or else God's consequence makes no sense. And any good father who gives a consequence for doing the wrong thing, it should be understandable. It should be something that their children get that's not completely abstract to them. So I propose to you, Adam and Eve knew what good and evil was. They knew what right and wrong was. That's not what the tree was. The tree of the yada, of good and evil, was being able to arbitrate for ourselves what is good and evil. I will decide that this is right for me and that is wrong for me, regardless of what God says, regardless of what his commands are. I'm choosing what I want to believe is right and wrong, which should sound rather familiar to most of us, because that's still the problem that our society and really humanity in general is struggling with. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. That might be good for you, but it's not good for me. They may be evil in your opinion, but in my opinion, it's not. This is what Adam and Eve are struggling with. So they eat the fruit, which means they decide, no, God's wrong about this, and I see a greater good. And we could go you know, through why they did it. It's out of fear of the serpent. Is it simply out of pride? It is it out of big-headedness? There's all sorts of things that we can speculate. But regardless, they don't trust that God is looking out for their will, or they don't trust that God is actually going to save them and provide for them. So they choose, well, I'm going to disagree with God on this one. And I'm going to say that that looks like a good to me. So they eat the fruit. They partake. And then it says after they had done this, they realize they're naked. They recognize the sin. There's shame and everything begins to unravel. And where we pick it up in the story here this week in Genesis 3, it says after the man, Adam and he had eaten of the tree, had arbitrated good and evil for himself, ignored God, stopped trusting. It says the Lord God came to the man and asked, where are you? Because he hid himself. Remember, he's naked. And he answered, Well, I heard you were in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And then God asked, Who told you you were naked? You've eaten then of the tree that I, forbid, that I which I had forbidden you to eat. And the man said, well, the woman who you put here with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. So really, you know, I yeah, I ate it. But really it was her fault. And if you think about it, God, you gave me the woman. So really it's your fault. This all goes back to you, God. So he's he's blaming her. He's blaming God. The woman's like, well, I, I only did it because the serpent made me do it. So everybody's playing the blame game. I, I actually find it fascinating as a side note. The serpent is the only one who does not give an excuse. He's the only one who simply absorbs it. He did what he did. He doesn't give an excuse. He isn't trying to answer for it. He simply did it. Humans try to make excuses, and we try to wiggle our way out. We try to blame somebody else. And here's where I think it's sort of fascinating. And then it goes on to the the consequence for the serpent. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl. Incidentally, if this serpent is now crawling on his belly after he tempted Adam and Eve and got them to eat the fruit... Presumably, he wasn't crawling on his belly before that, which tells me that this serpent is a little more threatening than a little garden snake winding around a tree, right? There's something more going on here. I think Adam and Eve fall to the the, the problem of fear. They don't reach out to God. But put that aside for now. It says, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dirt all the days of your life. And then he says, I will put enmity, so total discord, um, no commonality in a certain sense, between you and the woman, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will strike at your head and you will strike at his heel it's interesting this is what's called the protoevangelium which is a big term but even the ancients even the rabbis before the time of jesus everyone saw this as a subtle foretelling of the good news, the Evangelion, the gospel, right? That yeah, this is the way that things are, things are a mess, but there's going to come a time that God actually fixes that, and it's going to come through the seed, the offspring of this woman. What's interesting, it talks about the offspring of the serpent, right? Who Jesus actually, remember, he calls the Pharisees at one point, you were the spawn of Satan, you're the offspring of Satan, you're like the offspring of what happened in the garden. But it's interesting here in Genesis, the offspring of the woman is described in the singular tense, and it calls it a he. He, one, singularly, will crush your head, which is interesting because it tells about the Messiah. Even the ancient Jews were convinced that this was a passage about the Messiah, the singular Messiah who is to come and set everything right. But all of this leads me to this question that I I feel like I've posed on the podcast before, maybe not. But I just wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't know what this would have done. But if you think about it, the God who we believe in is a God of mercy. And that's what all the rest of the readings are about. Even though we're entrenched in sin, God is a God of mercy who wants to bring us out of this burden of sin. And I just wonder. You know, we read when God finds them in the garden, they're hiding. They blame one another. They're trying to wiggle out of it. I just wonder when God comes looking for them, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God who wants relationship, the God who is. When he comes looking for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, the cool of the day, by the way, in the ancient Middle East was the time that people would gather together for fellowship. It wasn't the hot, you know, oppressive heat of the day in the Middle East. It was the time in the evening where you would gather together in your garden or on your courtyard or on your roof and you would share a drink and you would share some food and you would have fellowship and community together. That's when God comes looking for them in the time of communion. And I wonder what would have happened if they simply said, Lord, have mercy on us. We totally blew it. We did what you asked us not to do. We didn't trust in you. We fell to our fear. God, forgive us. And I wonder how the story would have changed. I wonder how the story of all of humanity would have changed, but they do not. They don't own their sin and say, this is what we've done. Please have mercy on us. I think the whole story of human history would be profoundly different had they done that. And I believe that we have a God who would have accepted that apology. And things would have been very, very different. But they don't because we have a lot of pride. And we don't like to own up to when we've messed up. And we don't like to take ownership and not put it on somebody else. And so everything unravels. And then we enter into the rest of the story of salvation history, which is us always falling to our sin and never being willing to fully give ourselves back to God and allow him to pick us up until that moment that he enters into human history. He becomes one of us. He takes on our flesh so that he can bring us up out of the muck of our own sin, which actually takes us to Psalm 130, which says, with the Lord, there is mercy and fullness of redemption, which I think is just a fascinating thing to come on the heels of this reading from Genesis 3. Here is the profound sin that began to unravel the entire cosmos. The decision the man and woman made to not trust God, to trust in themselves, to trust in the words of the evil one. But yet with the Lord, there is mercy and fullness of redemption. We have only to turn to him. And again, I just, I'm so fascinated by this question. What if Adam and Eve had asked for mercy? Because that's really what the liturgy is telling us. That's what the church is pointing us toward. The Lord is mercy and fullness of redemption. And it goes on in the response to say, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication, my pleading in some translations. Out of the depths I cry to you, out of this mire of sin that we have sort of put ourselves in, that we were born into because of the sin of our first parents. We were born into a world that's broken and messy. Out of those depths, and then we've added on to it by the bad decisions we've made. Out of those depths of the recognition of our own sin, of the recognition of the brokenness that we live in, we cry only to God because he's the only one who can get us out of this. Um, we plead with him and we trust that his ears are going to hear this. I'm fascinated by the fact that this particular psalm is placed toward the very end of the psalter. Because as the psalter, uh, the psalter is the, the theological word for all the psalms together. And as the whole psalter draws to a close, you see more and more psalms looking forward. Saying, all right, Lord, we we are ready. We have felt the pain of this burden and this sin and this illness that we've been dealt. We felt it, and now we cry to you. When are you coming? When is the moment, when is this Kairos moment going to be that you step in and you set things right? We know it's coming. We're ready for it. We're waiting. We're reaching out for it. So it's it's appropriate that this psalm comes toward the end of that with this assurance. We know with the Lord there is mercy. We know it's coming. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know how it's coming, but we know it's coming, which is actually, I think, a good segue into the second reading, which is one of my favorite books, Second Corinthians. And a little bit of context for Second Corinthians here. Um, a lot of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians. We've talked about Corinth, right? Uh, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Really um, a disastrously sinful place. Things are pretty chaotic there. Um, Paul calls them out in First Corinthians. The whole of First Corinthians is really a book about Paul calling out all of the sin and the pride that's going on in the church in Corinth. He excommunicates somebody, he calls them babies, he uh, scolds them for these bad relationships that they're maintaining, these um, sexual exploits, all of this stuff, he really lets them have it in 1 Corinthians. And if you read it closely, you might imagine that the church in Corinth, that Paul is calling out for their pridefulness, might not like to be called out. We don't like it when our sin is pointed out to us. This is partially why Adam and Eve just don't own up to it, because there's shame. An embarrassment that we fall into. And sometimes that shame and embarrassment can be lashed out at somebody else, oftentimes at God. And you get the impression that the Corinthians did not like being called out. They didn't like being corrected. And so they probably respond in some way to uh, Paul. We don't have whatever letter. There was a letter in between. We don't have that letter. But Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It was rough. The Corinthians wrote back, and it did not go very well. And they attacked him. And, you know, you can kind of read between the lines of Second Corinthians. And they tore him to pieces. And it was this idea of who are you, who do you think you are to call us out? And there appears to be leaders in the church who have made it their mission to tear down the authority of Paul. And show that he is not who he says he is. And what you see in Second Corinthians is Paul's response to them basically defending himself and showing, no, I am an apostle. I am legitimate, even though you guys have actually stopped believing that I am. But their argument against him, what they use to try to prove that he is not legitimate, and he has no right to be saying these things to us, is that he suffers. And he's burdened by things. He's shipwrecked. He actually says he's not very well spoken, which Paul himself admits. He's not very well spoken. He's not necessarily very attractive or, you know, strong or tall in stature. You know, he doesn't look like this big hero king. He doesn't look like the prophets of old. He doesn't look like Moses who came down from the mountain glowing with the glory of God. Right? Paul's short. He doesn't speak very well. He doesn't look very good. He's always getting beat up. He's usually in prison. He's shipwrecked. He's sick. He's beaten. He's beaten. They're just like, you were a disaster, Paul. And what they're arguing is that, look at what a disaster you are. What sort of a prophet, what sort of an apostle undergoes all of the garbage that you do? God must not love you very much. You must not be legit, because if you were, you wouldn't look like that. You wouldn't be doing all that stuff. You're not like Moses, who again, you know, came down from the mountain, shining and glorious, gave us the commandments, was authoritative, all this stuff. You... They actually call him a paper tiger which is this idea that you're really good on paper yeah your letters they're great but you not so much you don't really stand up right the the, the letters are great you're really strong and authoritative but when you see it in person you're just like is this the real deal and so what paul does in second corinthians is two things he tries to argue for his legitimacy as an apostle but he also wrestles with this question i think second corinthians is a deeply prayerful and a deeply spiritual book In which Paul has to wrestle with the question of, yeah, why do I suffer so much? Why am I getting so beaten up? And the conclusion that he comes to, and you get the sense that he really is working this through, even on the pages of this letter with the Corinthians. And the conclusion that he reaches is, look, my sufferings are evidence. They're proof of the legitimacy of my apostleship. Because it's showing that Christ has called me alongside of himself on the way of the cross. And suffering is what defines the apostle of Jesus because it's different than the apostles of old. It's different than the prophets and the kings and the leaders of old because now God has said, I am entering into the muck. I'm entering into the brokenness and the the sorrow and the darkness and all of the stuff. And I'm going to take it on myself so that I can take these people and I can lift them up out of it. We do not have a God who is utterly separate from our reality. That's what Adam seems to think, right? Here's God kind of marching through the garden, looking for us to get us in trouble, to point his finger at us, to tell us how lousy we are. But that's never been the God we have. We have the God who wants to take on the burden and carry it with us and carry us. And that's what's shown in Jesus. He comes not to call everybody out and say how terrible everybody is and how great he is. He he does do that to an extent, but he comes to take it on to go into the deep, to actually be buried in the ground so that he could rise up victorious. And so Paul says to the degree that we are called to get beat up and carry our cross and be buried with him, we are sharing in Christ's glory because he will raise us back up. And he keeps saying, don't be discouraged by this. He says, it looks like our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self, what you can't see with human eyes, that's being built up day by day. He says this momentary light affliction, it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. That I think is where C.S. Lewis got the name of one of his greatest books, The Weight of Glory. Um it's beyond all comparison. As we look not to what is seen but what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. So he's saying, you're looking at me and you see me beat up, you see my cuts and bruises, you see my illnesses, you see my poor speech But what you don't see is the glory of God made manifest in me. There's a line in the middle of first Corinthians. It's right around here where Paul calls himself basically a jar of clay, which is where that band got its name. He says, I'm a jar of clay. I'm just a beat up earthen vessel. But God did that. So you never mistake the earthen vessel for the glory that I carry inside. I'm just a vessel that's carrying glory, but I never want you to think that the vessel is the glory. So God allows me to be beat up. He allows me to enter into these sufferings just like he did so that his glory can be manifest in my life, which is really beautiful because it gives us instruction for how to move about in this world that is kind of dark sometimes, which takes us to the gospel of Mark. And I love this passage because it shows what Jesus is going to do about it. And we'll wrap it up here. Are we doing the time? All right, we're okay. All right. So here's what's happening. This is Toward the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Um, and one of the first—well, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before—you can kind of define what the themes of the four Gospels are going to be based on the first public act that you see Jesus doing in them. So, for example, the first big public thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And what Ma- Matthew's setting you up for is that this gospel is going to be all about the teaching gospel. It's the catechetical gospel. And so he begins with Jesus' teaching. The Gospel of John, for instance, uh, begins with the wedding feast at Cana. That's the first public act. Um, because John's going to bear out all of this marital imagery that Jesus is going to show us. So he begins with a wedding. And in the Gospel of Mark, the very first thing that Jesus does publicly is an exorcism. This isn't the first one. I think this is the second one. But he begins with an exorcism because what Mark wants to show is that Jesus came to pick a fight with the evil one who picked a fight with our first parents in the garden. With that evil one, with that Nahash, that serpent, who picked a fight with our first mother in the garden, which our first father, Adam, didn't have the guts to actually stand up against. And so we fell to our fear and our sin but Jesus says, okay, the time for you to be in charge is up. And now that prophetic witness that God gave in Genesis 3, that I'm going to crush the, the offspring of the woman, is going to crush your head. It's happening now. And that's how Mark actually sets up his whole gospel. And so we come to Mark 3, verse 20, and it says this. Jesus came home with his disciples. So he's going back to, to Nazareth. Again the crowd gathered, making it impossible for them to even eat. It's it's crazy. People are hearing about this. They're losing their minds over Jesus because they're seeing he's casting out demons, he's doing all this stuff. His relatives heard it. They wanted to seize him because they're like this guy's out of his mind. What is going on? This is not the guy we grew up with. He's crazy. Um, but the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, so his word is getting out. People are hearing like there is this guy who's really causing ripples up in the Galilee, and he's casting out demons, and he seems to have authority in a way that none of our teachers seem to have. And so. The committee is sent from Jerusalem, right? The scribes, the Pharisees, they're there too. And they're all coming to investigate this guy because we don't trust him. He seems to be undermining the authority of the religious leaders. And he's doing all this stuff and he doesn't have our permission to do it. So they come up and they say this. He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. This moment in the Gospel of Mark is sort of a line of demarcation. It's one thing to ignore Jesus. It's one thing to doubt Jesus. It's one thing to be freaked out by Jesus. It's one thing to deny the sayings of Jesus. It's another thing altogether to say Jesus is working with Satan, which is what they're saying here. Hey, if he's casting out demons, it's only because he's working with the demons, And he's working with the evil one. That is a whole different level. And this is where the nature of Jesus' whole ministry in the Gospel of Mark is going to change. And he's going to veil himself and begin to hide from them a little bit more. He's not going to be quite as public because he knows he's got a lot of work to do before he goes to the cross, which he knows he's going to do, but he's got things to do before then. And so Jesus says this, Summoning them, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And he said, okay, I hear what these guys are saying, but how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, and if he is divided, he cannot stand. That's the end of him. What is Jesus saying here? There's a lot of kind of sayings. It's parabolic. It's, it's kind of abstract sounding. Satan can't drive out Satan because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus is basically saying, look, I'm not working for—when I cast out demons— I'm not working with the demons because that would mean that the kingdom of the demons, the kingdom of Satan, is divided. And if a kingdom is divided, it can't stand. It's not going to work. So he says, I'm not working with Satan because if I was, then his whole kingdom would fall. Which is strange if you kind of read between the lines because at this moment in his ministry, what Jesus is saying is essentially Satan's kingdom has not fallen yet. I can't be working with Satan because that would divide his kingdom. And clearly his kingdom is not divided. There is a unity to the evil one and the way he's trying to upend the world. And Jesus says, no, I'm not working with him because his kingdom is standing strong at the moment. However, here's what he says. But no one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can plunder his house. Amen. I say to you, all the sins and blasphemies that people utter will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never, be for, will never have forgiveness. But he's guilty of an everlasting sin. And they all said, oh, he's nuts. He's got an unclean spirit. He's a demon. But listen to what Jesus actually said there. He said, look, Satan's kingdom, it's not divided. And I'm not the one dividing it. It stands. And Satan's powerful. However, He goes on to talk about no one entering a strong man's house. If you remember the very beginning of the gospel of Mark, um, we're introduced to John the Baptist. He's the first figure that shows up in the gospel of Mark. And as John is baptizing people, he says to the crowds that one is coming after me. He says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, but do you guys remember what he calls the one who is coming? He says, one is coming who is stronger than I. And I, I think in, in Greek, I'd have to go back and check. I think he simply says, one is coming, who is stronger. And I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. That's how much greater he is than me. And then here, a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, hey, look, there's a strong man. That's Satan. And this strong man has taken things over and he's got a kingdom and he's got a house that's powerful. And no one can enter the house of a strong man unless he's stronger. Mark already set Jesus up as not the strong man, but the stronger man. And now Jesus says, look, this kingdom, this household, this evil one who has been upending the human story from day one, threatening, leading to terror, fear, causing us to fall far away from God. Guess what? My ministry is going to be one where I go into his house, I tie him up, and I plunder him. I'm going to bind him, and I'm going to plunder him. Just you wait. That's what the setup for the gospel story is. That is the Evangelium. That is the good news. That's the gospel that we have a God who is coming to our rescue. We've been threatened, we've been seemingly held hostage. And God has said, Well, they seem way too comfortable with their hostage situation. They seem too comfortable with their slavery. I need them to realize that they need freedom, I need them to realize that they need a savior. And when they realize that, even if they don't realize it, I'm going to come and I'm going to bind that hostage taker and I'm going to strike him and I'm going to crush his head and I'm going to take away his kingdom and it will be divided and ruined forever. And when Jesus says, you know, the whole unforgivable sin here, the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, what he's essentially saying is, look, the unforgivable sin is not believing in the power for sins to be forgiven. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is. If you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, what you're doing is saying, well, there really isn't any mechanism which, with, with which God could forgive me. That's what Adam seems to be falling into here. I'm not saying Adam was never forgiven. We don't know. But the nature of it is saying, no, there's no possibility for me to be forgiven. And if you don't believe that God can forgive you, then that's unforgivable. Not because God's withholding something, but because he's not going to force something on us. The power of the Holy Spirit is what sets us free. And if we say, no, the power of the Holy Spirit is just Satan at work, like these scribes are saying, then, yeah, that's pretty bad territory to be in. And then it goes on, and Jesus talks about uh, what discipleship is. It says his mother and his brothers arrived. They stood outside, and they sent word to call to him. And the crowd that was seated around, they said, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside, and they're asking for you. And he has this cryptic line. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around those who are seated, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Which some of our Protestant friends will read and say, look, Jesus is not very big on the blessed mother, right? Jesus seems to be downplaying the importance of Mary. Unlike you Catholics who hold her up way too high, even higher than Jesus did. He's like, I don't care about my mom. These people who are following the will of God, they're my real mothers. But that's not really what Jesus is saying, and this kind of brings everything to a head. St. Augustine, I think it was St. Augustine, he said, Now, if you read this line carefully, I mean, really, what is it that we venerate about Mary? We venerate Mary, yes, because she's the Theotokos. She was the mother of God. She was chosen to bear the Messiah. Yeah, that's huge. But it's not only that. It's the fact that it wasn't just that she was arbitrarily chosen to bear the Messiah. It's the fact that she said, yes, her fiat, this... this huge statement this is i'm willing to undergo the humiliation possible possibly execution for having a child out of wedlock i'm willing to take on all of this terror these things that are horrifying i mean to have a child out of wedlock like what's happening to mary you know joseph wants to quietly divorce her cuz he's freaked out but if that was found out she would be put to death she would be stoned she would be buried in the sand up to her shoulders and pummeled with rocks until she was dead which is a brutal way to talk about this. But what Mary is saying yes to, to the angel Gabriel is I'm willing to trust God that he is going to save me. You know, it's funny in the garden of Eden, the old Eve could not trust that there was a God who would get her out of this situation. She had to give in or she felt that she had to give in what to what the evil one was saying. There was an Adam who was not willing to stand up to this Nahash, this serpent and say, no, you're a liar. It was all defined by fear. Now we call Mary, of course, the new Eve. She is who Jesus calls the woman, right? That's referenced back in Genesis 3. And this woman facing terrors, a lot of fear, a lot of consequence, a lot of danger, stands up in the face of that Nahash, that evil one who's probably whispering in her ear as the angel Gabriel is there saying, think about all the consequences. Think you're going to be rejected. You might be put to death. This is going to be too hard. There's no way you can say yes to what this angel is asking. And Mary says, no, that's a lie. That evil one, that serpent is lying to me. Fiat, yes, Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. She is the new Eve because she calls out lies and deceit for what they are. And she says yes to the God who is mercy, who is always looking for us, who is always extending a hand to give us life so that we don't have to fear the evil one we don't have to fear anything because he is the strong man, stronger man, who has bound and um, plundered the evil one. Who tried to bind and plunder us. And he's reached out his hand and he says, I'm here. Take my hand, get up, and let's go. Because that's the kind of God we have. That's what he does with our sin. It's bound and it's plundered. And we are asked to get back up and move forward in faith and in confidence and in fearlessness. Which is what puts Mary in this context as number one. She stands in the front of the line of those who do the will of God. Jesus says, who are my brother and my sisters and my mother? It's those who do the will of God. And St. Augustine says he knows perfectly well who stands in the front of that line. It's Mary herself. That's why she is so venerated. Yes, she's the mother of God, which is huge, but she's also the mother of God who stands first in line of what it means to be a disciple. So, On this 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time, I pray that we can all have the grace to be like Mary, to stand up, to deny those lies that the evil one wants to whisper in our ears, to make us fall into our pride, to make us fall into fear. And we can get up and we can say, let it be done unto me according to your will. And we can take God by the hand and we can trust that he's going to lead us. So thank you guys for listening. Sorry, it's just me this week. I think we'll be back together next week. Have a wonderful 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Hopefully it's beautiful wherever you are, but enjoy the summer, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then enjoy the winter, I suppose. And we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T You can send us an email, lankyguys at thomascenter.org And we love you guys. Keep us in your prayers.